we're an organization that's focused on uh, transparency for the sake of accountability, right? The idea being that if companies aren't uh, transparent about what they do, no one can hold them accountable. Facebook and Google have started doing that uh, in a limited way uh, for elections in the U.S. and, uh, and EU. Hello, and welcome back to Exploring Digital Spheres. After a small summer break, we're back with an episode on a widely discussed aspect of our digital society. How do we make sure that companies like Facebook and Google respect human rights, their customers' privacy, and the freedom of expression? For example, when we're talking about something like free basics in Myanmar. Our next guest knows a lot about that. She is Natalie Marichal, Senior Research Analyst from Ranking Digital Rights, she will be interviewed by Frédéric Dubois, managing editor of the journal Internet Policy Review, about her research and work on corporate accountability. Here is their conversation. Bonjour, Nathalie. Bonjour, Frédéric. So I'm here with uh, Nathalie Maréchal. I'm myself, uh, Frédéric Dubois. Uh, I'm the managing editor of Internet Policy Review, a publication uh, out of uh, Humboldt Institute here in Berlin. And I'd just like to start with um, the very basic question um, uh, of who you are, uh, Nathalie Maréchal. Um, where are you uh, visiting us from? And uh, yeah. Thank you. It's, it's a great pleasure to be here in Berlin and at uh, Humboldt in particular, uh, and especially since it's Spargo season. Uh, and that, of course, has been very exciting for me as a, as a fan of asparagus. Uh, so I'm uh, actually French-American. My father's French and my mother's American. I was born in Louisville, Kentucky, grew up in Paris, uh, returned to the United States for high school and have mostly lived in Washington, D.C. That means that uh, in terms of my outlook on, on life and how I look at politics and and uh, the digital society, uh, I think I bring a, a somewhat unique mix of American and European perspectives uh, to the table. Uh, professionally speaking, uh, I'm a human rights activist, I'm a writer, uh, and I'm a researcher. I finished my PhD last year at the University of Southern California, so Los Angeles is actually another place that I've called home uh, at one point. And uh, now I'm a senior research analyst at Ranking Digital Rights, which is uh, a nonprofit research-based initiative that ranks the world's most powerful internet, mobile, and telecommunication companies on their uh, respect for human rights online, specifically freedom of expression and privacy. I see. Um, so can you tell us a little bit um, about your PhD at first, um, giving us just the, maybe in a nutshell, what it was about and how uh, maybe this helps us um, relate it to your work, the work you're doing today? Sure. So my PhD uh, is a political economy of digital rights technology. And when I say digital rights technology, I'm uh, referring specifically to technical tools that help uh, people either stay more private online uh, or get around online censorship, specifically technical censorship or both. So I looked at four different tools, which were Siphon, Tor, Signal, and Telegram. 
And I trace the history of uh, these tools. So who who the developers are, who uh, who the funders are, for what those, kind of for those uh, who who don't know these tools, what what are they? What what's the common uh, denominator sure. for all these tools? The, thank you um, for the question. So the the common denominator is that these are tools that help people either get around online censorship. So Siphon does that uh, specifically. Tor can also be used to get around uh, technical censorship or, or blocking or they help people stay more private online. I closed the, the data collection phase in, uh, the, in early 2018. So I was looking mostly at the uh, 2015 to 2018 period was, was what I was really looking at. But uh, as far as this, you know, this shift away from the focus on government surveillance and towards corporate surveillance, uh, and same thing, you know, government censorship versus corporate threats to freedom of expression. I think that's a conversation that's been much further along in Europe than it has been in the United States. Uh, you know, I think in the U.S. for a lot of different reasons, but in, notably the, the Patriot Act that uh, from 2001 and then the Snowden revelations in 2013 really got uh, American civil society super focused on uh, the government surveillance angle and really only caring about the corporate surveillance from the standpoint of when Google and Facebook collect our data, sometimes the government gets a hold of it. Uh, and now we're seeing uh, a conversation that I think is long overdue about what does the fact that these uh, tech companies, uh, they collect so much data about everyone, in, often without consent, often without people even knowing that it's happening. And then they use that data to uh, not only to make money by showing us ads, but to influence our behavior by enabling uh, advertisers to target us very, uh, very narrowly, but also by uh, by developing AI tools that nudge us to take certain actions or move us towards certain points of view. And uh, this is something that is happening outside of any form of democratic control and is happening really, really quickly. This is um, how do you relate that to to your th thesis in particular? Because I think what you're what you mean right now are companies like uh, Facebook or platforms like like Facebook and maybe Twitter to a certain extent, uh, um, and and Google services uh, for sure. Um, but how do you relate that to what you were looking into in terms of your thesis, thesis particularly? Yeah, I mean it's it's not directly related. Uh, I, I chose to write a dissertation not on. Um, tech companies and human rights because that's what I do in my job uh, and have for several years. And so I wanted to write a dissertation about something a little bit different. You know, I'm the kind of person who likes to have at least two different projects going on so that if I, you know, if I run into uh, into a wall on one, I can go work on the other and yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. work that, you know. I, I you see what you mean. <laughs> yeah. So, but they're, they're, they're related enough that, you know, have, having a better understanding of the movement than I did before writing my PhD definitely helps me understand what's going on uh, in the advocacy space on the issues uh, that I work on. Okay, so this means uh, parallel to your thesis, you also worked for uh, an NGO. Was yeah, it so already for Ranking Digital Rights? Yeah. Already. So, I, so okay. I first joined Ranking Digital Rights as a summer fellow in 2014. What What was the the initial uh, spark, or what was it? What uh, draw you to uh, Ranking Digital Rights, uh, particularly at the beginning? Do you remember what the motivation was? Yeah. So the motivation was that uh, I had just finished uh, my first year in my PhD program in. Los Angeles. And I knew that I wanted to spend the summer doing something uh, career relevant in Washington, D.C., where I had, I'd been living uh, 
before and where my longtime partner was still living because of his job. And one of my professors at USC said to me, huh, you're, you're interested in human rights and you're interested in internet policy, internet politics. Uh, we have this fellowship program where we'll pay you to go um, be a fellow at either a government office or a nonprofit in DC and learn about communication policy. You should meet my co- my you know my colleague Rebecca McKinnon. I think you'd really hit it off. And so I was uh, annoyingly persistent in uh, asking Rebecca to give me an informational interview one time when I was in in DC uh, for a holiday. And you know, by the end of the conversation, we both agreed that yeah, this could be a, a great collaboration. And she said, "Sure, like assuming you get this funding, come and work for me this summer, absolutely." Nice. Um, you're here during the Republika, the big internet uh, conference, European internet conference here in, in Berlin, um, and you um, you also had the chance to um, organize a workshop uh, at the Humboldt Institute. Um, maybe you could uh, tell us a bit where that fits into the picture. Uh, we understand that you you were at Uh, ranking digital rights in different uh, capacities and are now uh, working on the different reports that you're producing also. We'll get to that. Um, but what exactly was the, the workshop about that uh, you were involved with here in Berlin? Sure. So uh, let me give a little bit of, of background about uh, what ranking digital rights does and, uh, and where I fit into all that. So our main activity is to publish an annual corporate accountability index. And as we're sitting here on uh, May 8th, the 2019 edition comes out May 16th. Uh, and I can't really talk about what's in the report, but by the time you all listen to it, it will already be out. So uh, go ahead and check it out on our website, rankingdigitalrights.org. Uh, the, what I can say about the report is that this will be the third year in a row that we have the exact same uh, research methodology, uh, which allows us to uh, com do year-to-year -year comparisons for the same companies, which is super useful for, uh, for a lot of different purposes. But the problem with keeping the methodology the same from year to year is that we're not evolving to adapt to the new context, to you know recent developments in technology and society, new uh, challenges to human rights that are emerging, and so on. And so my role is to uh, lead our methodology development process to figure out how we adapt the index to the new threats to human rights that have emerged in the past three or four years. Uh, what would that be exactly? Like, uh, what are the new threats that you're uh, thinking of? Yeah. So when we devised the the current methodology, in uh, we, we we finalized the the current methodology in 2016, but we'd been working on it for about three years before that. the The main focus uh, in the news and in the public conversation was on risks to individual human rights that are directly related to a person's use of a given company's products or services. So I'll give you two examples. One example would be that uh, maybe my cell phone operator gave my text message history to, uh, in which I'm talking to a colleague about organizing a protest. They gave these text messages to the security services and they came and took me away in the middle of the night because I'm in a country where organizing a protest is illegal, right? So that would be one example. Another example related to expression would be that I posted something uh, in support of uh, LGBT rights and support of queer rights on uh, Facebook and for some reason my post got taken down. 
and uh, I don't know why. Uh, I don't know what I can do to get it taken back. Maybe I even got locked out of my account uh, for some reason and just no ability to find out what is going on there. And that was a very frequent situation, especially uh, at the time we were developing this. And so you're, uh, so you're mentioning these developments and you're saying that the way you've um, set up the methodology up until now um, for ranking these different companies on a human rights uh, scale, um, that it, it doesn't really, uh, the methodology doesn't really work at this stage to well, it, it, fully uh, grasp that. Or, yeah, so what we're finding is that um, a lot of the issues that are in the news right now that are related to the role that tech and, and mobile and internet companies uh, have uh, on our lives and on human rights um, aren't so much uh, clear-cut individual rights issues. They're more about changing the structure of society. They're more about uh, group rights, rights at the level of entire countries. So Myanmar is probably the most clear example uh, of this. So um, over the past uh, few years, Myanmar has been uh, trying to transition uh, from being a military dictatorship to a democracy, and in that process has opened up to uh, a lot of foreign media companies, tele telecommunications operators. Uh, it's a country that doesn't have any kind of a recent history of a free press. Uh, there's not a lot of press outlets. Because the country was cut off from uh, from the global internet for so long, uh, the script that's used to write uh, the Burmese language uh, isn't compliant with uh, with Unicode. Uh, basically, it means computers can't use can't read it. So you can't really use uh, AI to do content moderation or or anything like that uh, right. the way that you can in English or, or German. For example, and so what's been going on over the past few years is that um, so all these foreign companies went into to Myanmar, including uh, cell phone operators, but also to, uh, social media platforms like Facebook. And Facebook, in particular, uh, partnered with different cell phone providers to offer a service called Free Basics. And uh, Free Basics is uh, what we call a zero rating program. Uh, and that means that certain types of data don't count towards your data limit. And so that means that as long as you stick to the types of uh, websites or, or apps that are part of your zero rating package, that's free. But going outside of that costs money. And so what tends to happen in those situations, especially with uh, a very poor population, like is the case in Myanmar, is that people will only use the free services and not any of the paid ones. So the deal with free basics is that face the Facebook decides what can be accessed, quote unquote, for free without paying. And so, of course, what is that? It's Facebook, it's Instagram, it's Messenger, it's WhatsApp. And so that leads to a situation where for a lot of people in Myanmar, Facebook is the internet. Nothing else exists. And because, again, Facebook, uh, Facebook did not uh, think ahead to how they were going to do content moderation because they didn't have, they couldn't do it uh, through, with AI tools because computers can't read the Burmese language. And they, uh, they still don't have nearly enough, but when they started, they didn't have any content reviewers uh, who were fluent in Burmese, much less actually understood the uh, the cultural and social context. What happened is that um, a lot of uh, bad actors associated, uh, many of them associated with, uh, with the military in, in Myanmar, uh, started running ads, like paid ads, and also uh, kind of 
generating um, viral content uh, saying that um, Muslims are dirty, Muslims are violent, Muslims kidnap and abuse uh, Buddhist babies, um, just all the horrible hate speech that you can imagine a majority group uh, throwing at a minority group and encouraging violence against uh, the Rohingya in particular, uh, who are a Muslim minority group in Burma, uh, and the with the end result being uh, forced migration, ethnic cleansing, and genocide. Uh, you know, in human rights terms, this is as bad as it gets. Uh, and this is something that has been studied by the United Nations. There's been uh, very serious reports uh, that draw a very clear connection between Facebook's presence in Myanmar and the specific ways that Free Basics was set up and uh, and the genocide in that country. How does that, how do you provide for that in the current methodology so that when you're looking at a company like Facebook, I I gather there there's a number of companies in your ranking, uh, but it's a quite limited number, isn't it? That's right. So the 2019 index has 24 companies. 24. Okay, and the 2018 uh, had... 2018 had 22. 22, So we added right. two new ones in 2019, including Deutsche Telekom. Right, okay. And so how do you account for things that are like almost national in, in terms of jurisdiction or focus? Um to, you know, on, on the global um, track record of the company. Like, yeah. How do you account for that? So methodologically, that's really, really difficult. So something like the Myanmar case that I just described, our current methodology doesn't really account for, which is why we're doing this revision process. Uh, we do ask uh, questions in our governance section about whether a company does human rights impact assessments uh, before going into uh, new markets, launching new products, and so on. Uh, and so this is a case where... If Facebook had done an adequate human rights impact assessment prior to launching Free Basics in Myanmar, they would have seen this coming. They should have seen this coming. Um, okay, so so is is this also something that you you know from discussions that you're having with these companies, like not just Facebook but also the other companies, or how how do you know that they weren't prepared and so on? Are you in the in of of these companies in some way? Are you in dialogue with them, or is it more? Um, a methodology where you basically look at what you see from what they put out in terms of transparency reports and things like that. That's right. So it's 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 the latter. We are in dialogue with them in terms of explaining to them why uh, we think they should do things differently. But in terms of uh, the scores that uh, that companies uh, have in, in the index, that's all based on publicly available information. So as you were hinting, you know, you can only measure what you can see. You know, uh, we as a, a relatively small nonprofit uh, project simply don't have the ability to go inside of companies and seeing what they're actually doing. Uh, similarly, you know, I don't know of a research method that would allow me to say that this, the, the, This human rights violation in this country is 32% due to Facebook, 11% due to right. Google, and like 29% due to their own government, right? right. There's no regression that's going to tell you that. I understand. No, I was just uh, wondering if there was also some kind of privileged access that you were able to maybe um, get over time um, in dialogue with these companies. Uh, for instance, access to data. 
to really assess, you know, with some quantitative methodology to see how maybe the impact plays out uh, in more detail, you know? Right. Um, but yeah. that's no, not we don't, the case. No, yeah. we, don't, we don't do that. So everything that's in the index is based on public information that anyone can access without having to log into the platform. Now, we do talk regularly to the companies. Uh, part of our research process is that we, when we've com collected the, the, the data and done uh, um, calculated draft scores for the index, we send uh, the preliminary results to each company and give them a few weeks to respond. Uh, and, How's the response rate? Uh, higher and higher every year. There's still a small number of companies that don't engage with us, and unsurprisingly, these are the ones at the very bottom of the index. Uh, but uh, this year, even the Russian and Chinese companies engaged with us. So it's something where they're gradually learning what it's like to uh, do um, to do due diligence and to engage with civil society. So in that way, we're, um, we're, we're educating them about this part of the process and the global conversation of yeah. setting norms. I'd like to know um, what the benchmark is or if there's a, some kind of, let's call it gold standard uh, against which you assess the, the corporate practices. Like, is there like this one, um, yeah, gold standard, or is it more uh, like a mix of indicators that you the measure the, the, the companies by? Like yeah, how I mean, I would say that, you know, if, if a company managed to get 100% on the index, according to, um, to, to our indicators, um, that would be pretty close to the gold standard. There would probably still be more things that companies could do to not just respect human rights, but proactively promote human rights, but we really look at the index as being like, what are, what are the basic things that companies really should all be doing to respect freedom of expression and privacy? And, you know, there's, there's been measurable improvement since the first index came out in 2015, but we're still in a situation where the highest scores are in the 60s. And that's not a passing grade in any school I've ever attended. <laughs> okay. Uh, but, but what would be your goal, let's say, if we look at, at this more on a scale of the next five years? Um, what would be your objective with this, um, with the, the Ranking Digital Rights Project in general? Uh, is it to really have an impact on companies themselves or to raise awareness uh, a bit larger in society, like have a more social impact in general in terms of communication, raising awareness on, on human rights online? Or is it more really making sure that these companies in the index Uh, change and um, evolve their practices. Yeah, I think I think the point for us is to get companies to do better and be better. There's a lot of ways to achieving that, uh, and you know we think of uh, the index data that we produce every year as really core infrastructure for the digital rights movement. You know we we produce a data set, we we analyze it, and we we write about our results, and we present it at conferences and speak to the media and everything. But it's really a tool uh, that we. Want want other civil society organizations, but also regulators and journalists and uh, government, other branches of government, company, even companies themselves to use to figure out, um, you know, what companies should be doing differently, what sorts of uh, best practices governments should consider writing into law, uh, and to build uh, advocacy campaigns around. So we're, we're a very small team, uh, so we don't really have the capacity to do big advocacy campaigns. But every year, for example, we, uh, we work with Access Now and um, 
the uh, the Business and Human Rights Resource Center to do a letter writing campaign. So every year after the index comes out, uh, our partners uh, draft uh, formal open letters uh, to the uh, to the boards of directors of all of these companies, saying, you know, here, you know, we want to draw you a, draw your attention to. Uh, the report card on your company that Ranking Digital Rights put out. These are three specific recommendations for where we think you should improve next year. We invite your public response, which we will publish on our website, etc., etc. Nathalie Maréchal, thank you so much for the conversation we just had. Um, so you're listening to the podcast Exploring Digital Spheres. And uh, again, thank you so much for uh, being here today. Um, My pleasure. It's always uh, always happy to be here in Berlin. Auf Wiedersehen. Auf Wiedersehen. That were Nathalie Marichal and Frédéric Dubois. More on their research you can find in the notes of the show. In the next episode, I have a conversation with HIG researcher Christian Katzenbach about internet policy and governance. For now, this was Exploring Digital Spheres. Catch you on the flip side. <laughs>